Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Tyrant Books, publisher of Pets, an anthology. It's edited by Jordan Castro. It features fiction, poetry, and essays about pets ranging from cats and dogs to an ex-racehorse and dead chickens. Contributors include Ann Beatty, Christine Scutt, Tao Lin, Scott McClanahan, Chelsea Hodson, Sarah Manguso, and more. Pets, an anthology available now from Tyrant Books. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. My name is Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles and it is nice to be with you. I have Spring Washam on the program today. She is the author of a book called A Fierce Heart. It's available from Hay House. And Spring Washam is an author. She's a meditation teacher. She is the founder of the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, California. And she is also the founder of Lotus Vine Journeys, an organization that blends indigenous healing practices with Buddhist teachings. So uh, I have been a fan of her and her work for a long time. I'm very excited to have her on the program. And I feel like it's an opportune moment to talk with Spring Washam because I think all of us are feeling exhausted. I think all of us are feeling some level of exhaustion and stress considering the moment that we're in, considering all that we have on our plates. Do we not have enough on our plates? We have, I, I think I've lost count. We have a pandemic. We have a crazy president. We have, uh, what else? We have a huge protest movement happening. We have systemic racism to dismantle. We have uh, voter suppression to deal with and an election on the horizon in November. You know what I mean? So I, I wanted, I've wanted to have spring on the program for a long time and, uh, we got our schedule synced up and we had a wonderful talk and I think you're going to enjoy it. It's the perfect episode for a Sunday. It's the perfect episode for the summer solstice. Also, I think today's uh, father's day, happy father's day to all the fathers out there. So, uh, what else can I say? Oh, today's episode is brought to you by Grey Wolf Press, publisher of Post-Colonial Love Poem, the new poetry collection from Natalie Diaz. The New York Times Book Review says, quote, Post-Colonial Love Poem is no doubt 
one of the most important poetry releases in years. Postcolonial Love Poem by Natalie Diaz, available now from Grey Wolf Press. All right, so I hope you're doing well out there. I hope you're not uh, too stressed. If you are feeling stressed or you're feeling super tired, then I think this conversation could help a little. And I think uh, Spring Washam and her teachings and her book and the work that she does might be of use to you. So let's get to it. This is my conversation with Spring Washam, and her book, One More Time, is called A Fierce Heart. I mean, I think as a child, I I write in my book in the first chapter that I looked at my sister. I don't know, I was already four or five years old, and we both remember this conversation where I said, okay, this is going to be a hard life. You know, we were poor. (laughs) My father was all over the place and had a lot of mental health issues. We were black. You know, I I saw right away, like, okay, uh, there's not a lot of wisdom around me. My mother, you know, had a lot of struggles and challenges. And but I think I was deeply spiritual, though, as a child, because I would sit and look out of our window. And I remember we were living in this um, low income apartment building in East Long Beach, Bellflower area. And I remember just being very curious about the world outside and to seeing, you know, seeing people arguing and fighting and, um, you know, people on drugs. And I, I had this very deep, heartfelt sense of sorrow about that. And also curiosity that why are people this way? What is making them suffer? So I, I, at a young age, I had a deep longing to understand the nature of mind and the nature of emotions. Um, so it wasn't that surprising for me that as a teenager, I got really into spirituality and began studying. I started by studying self-help psychology, sort of the you can heal your life, uh, you know, you are what you think, all that genre, which is really great, actually, as a young person reading all of that. And then, um, as I've shared in previous shows and written about, I somebody handed me a book of um, Paramahasa Yogananda, so the author of Autobiography of a Yogi, um, the founder of the Self-Realization Fellowship School. Um, he's actually died many years now, but his work and his um, teachings definitely continue generation after generation. Um, but it was through reading his book that I began to understand that my path was about meditation too. And it was so inspiring. It it was really life-changing um, to start reading his work and then start going to the Self-Realization Fellowship to study meditation. Um, and that was a, like a game changer. Okay, so I want to I want to ask you about this uh, awareness that you had as a child, and especially I guess as a teenager, where you started to get into spirituality and self help, and you had been witnessing people, um, you know, like you said, uh, in the environment that you lived in, in um, you know, all sorts of different situations, not all of which were great, and mm. I, I guess like. I often wonder about people who have the kind of resilience that you have. Like, is that something that's innate? Was there any kind of example of a spiritual life around you that you were looking to as a model? Or was it something that you just sort of intuited and then started to build on your own from books? 
I think for me, I really started to build it on my own. And it was being exposed. You know, I went through a lot of trauma when I was a teenager. I was living at that time on my own with some friends in South Central LA. And it was right at the time of all the gang uh, riots and it was like all the fighting of Crips and Bloods. It was like that whole stage uh, Southern California kind of went through where they, the gang violence was at a heightened level beyond. And I think I really was exposed to people living and dying and violence and the sadness of the inner city and the poverty and the police brutality. And as I got a little bit older, those experiences I feel like push me in a spiritual direction. I was like, what is the meaning of this? What is the purpose of this? Like, I, I don't understand why this exists or why people are choosing this or why there's so much anger and despair. And I think I had a lot of questions about the mind because I somehow knew at a certain age that, that something's wrong with our minds. <laughs> you know, I had this, like, it was like a profound insight, like, Something's wrong with the way we're thinking. And it was like an aha moment. You know, like our thoughts. Yes, that's it. And so that led me into wanting to understand thinking, thoughts, what we believe, why we do what we do. Um, I, I just was very interesting, very interested in that whole area of, of the mind and, and psychology. And so, so that's what led me into Buddhism quite by accident. I ended up going on this 10 day retreat and then I met um, Jack Cornfield, a Buddhist teacher and writer and the founder of Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And he became my teacher. And it was through the Buddhist tradition that I began to understand the nature of my own mind. And that's why I love that tradition. You know, I'm very open with all traditions, but I love the kind of step-by-step -step model that the Buddha laid out um, around suffering and freedom and what leads to what. And so that, that kind of map really resonated because my mind naturally tended to incline in that direction already. Yeah, I've, I feel the same way. Like I've always joked with, with people. I'm like, I just want some instructions. Like just give me the instructions <laughs> and I just want a list of things to do. I will do them, but just tell me what they are. And right. the, I feel like Buddhism comes as close to like a logical set of instructions as I've been able to find. I agree, you know, because I wanted to understand how not to suffer. I wanted to understand how to be happy and I wanted to become more aware of my thinking. I really did know that my thinking had a lot to do with it. And I was also very inspired. Another teacher that I had when I was very young, a teenager, um, was Reverend Michael Beckwith and the founder of Agape Church. I found my way to that church, Agape International, which is a, a church really founded in the New Thought Movement. I started meditating there and listening to Reverend Michael teach, and I was deeply, deeply inspired by him as well. I attribute a lot of my um, uh, inspiration around continuing on my own was me going to that church all by myself and, and absorbing the love and the, the wisdom and those teachings as well. So that was another big inspiration of mine. He still is to this day. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And what about your family? Like when you're suddenly like, hey, I'm going to go to the self-realization fellowship or I'm going to go to this church. What did your sister think? Did your mother have input? Did your dad have input? Or were you kind of free to do these things without any kind of input? Yeah, I was really free to do things. You know, my father had left when I was very young. So there was like a 20 year period where I didn't see him. And then when we were reunited, um, the relationship was always difficult. You know, he had many other children and as I mentioned, he kind of has like a borderline mental health issue. So it was in a very difficult relationship and long periods where, um, you know, he didn't speak to his children or he was going through, you know, just living and poverty and trying to figure out his life. So um, and then my mother, I left my mother's house when I was about 15 and I was very independent. So I really was on my own exploring all of these things. My sister, on the other hand, also is very similar to myself. So her and I um, somehow managed together to keep each other inspired around, you know, healing. And we used to talk about this at such a young age, like, we're going to get through this. <laughs> you know, we're going to survive all this trauma and, and we're, we're going to learn and we're going to live a spiritual life. And, and now my sister's in ministerial school. Wow. So, yeah, it's really interesting that we have the family that we have. We're very unique uh, in our lineage, I'll say. <laughs> well, I was going to say, too, you know, because uh, you go to this 10-day Buddhist retreat, which is a, it was a silent retreat, right? Right. Mm -hmm. so, so no talking at all. And this is kind of like jumping... This is jumping right into it, you know, coming, coming in, I guess you've had, you know, you'd had some experience, but I think for people listening who have never considered the notion of going on a 10 day silent retreat, uh, that's a pretty intense experience, particularly for someone, uh, like yourself who was, you know, who had a, a difficult childhood and, and upbringing and, you know, to suddenly be completely quiet and alone with all that. It's a lot for anybody, I think, especially if you're, if you're just sort of jumping right into it. Well, I agree with you, but prior to me going on that retreat, I suffered so much, just ups and downs, and I write on my book about the story of going to that retreat, and, um, you know, I had just, my bro boyfriend and I just broke up, and I was crying, driving all the way to the retreat, and chain smoking, and drinking <laughs> Mountain Dew, you know, just a mess. I remember I showed up at the registration table, and I was like, help! <laughs> and for me, that was worse than the retreat. What I was living, you know, for me, it only could get better. 
you know, okay, whatever I have to face, I'll face. And it ended up being one of the most profound experiences of my entire life. That 10 day retreat, we were in Yucca Valley out in the desert um, near Joshua Tree. And it was just so magical. And, you know, I met my teacher there. And I, I found these teachings that for me, um, it was like a ladder out of sorrow, you know, and so I just held on to that and it really was life changing. And shortly after that, I did another 10 day retreat. And then shortly after that, I decided to go to Massachusetts and do a three month retreat. So for me, I just jumped in. See, this is, this is why I love you. This is like why I, I find you so inspiring because I'm kind of like one of these, I, I'm, I've told you this before, but I'm one of these people who's really into all of this stuff and reads about it incessantly and listens to podcasts and all the kind, you know, all that kind of stuff. But my life, at least as it, in its present iteration, it cannot accommodate like the three month retreat. These right. are, these are kind of fantasies I have. So for, for <laughs> me, you're like, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, um, I feel kind of like a sports fan almost. I'm like spring is an all-star she is going you know for three six months at a time whatever it is and actually really doing this stuff and i uh i admire it it's it's like it takes a lot of commitment and i guess i'm curious to know when you go on a retreat that extended um you know 10 days can seem like quite a lot to somebody but mm -hmm. if you, you know going away for let's say six months in living in silence alone and practicing pretty much all day every day can you talk a little bit about what that experience uh, or what those kinds of experiences have brought to you? Yeah, you know, and first to say that that kind of lifestyle is more rare in our culture. And I was very drawn to that. And I know that that's a unique thing. You know, everybody does want to imagine going off to the cave, you know, I'll get a cabin and, you know, go on the mountaintop and we do have that side. And for me, it really came out of feeling like I was in a life or death situation energetically. You know, I was so hurt and I was going toward a very destructive path. And so for me, going away for three months was almost a little bit like rehab. It was like a reset. Like I needed to stop myself um, from harming myself with my thoughts and the trauma and my actions. They were so out of alignment and I was scared myself. So for me to go for three months into this beautiful place and meditate and eat vegetarian food and take long walks and and let go, you know, of the past and let go of everything that had been sort of haunting me, that was really what happened to me on those long retreats that I did many of. It was like I would reconcile my karma hmm. in a way. Everything I had done what was no longer working, all of that would come while you're sitting on the cushion, you know, hour after hour, fear and loneliness and sorrow and joy. And every evening we would have these beautiful talks and I would be so inspired by the Dharma and the life of the Buddha and awakening. And so for me, I didn't feel like, believe it or not, I had a choice. It felt like you do this or you die because mm -hmm. You're so mentally uh, unwell. So for me, it was like, a, to me, those retreats are like hospitals, spirit yeah. hospitals. <laughs> right, right, right. And, you know? And were you, uh, I know, you, you know, you, you, the, the story you, you've told uh, and you tell in your book about going to that first retreat with Jack Cornfield and smoking cigarettes, mm. smoking cigarettes and drinking Mountain Dew. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about the subsequent three month retreat and this notion of it being kind of like a field hospital for the spirit, do you, um, like, did you at that time have uh, like, like any kind of substance abuse going on? Like, were you going further than Mountain Dew and cigarettes? Was there a lifestyle that you were living that was unhealthy in that sense? Well, yeah, I think, you know, I had when I was younger, before I went to my first retreat. Yeah, I think I had a marijuana addiction that was creating a lot of confusion. I was never an alcoholic and I I never went beyond that. But I just was living a way that mentally destructive. So I'm smoking weed and eating bad food and, you know, living on cookies and having a relationship where I fought all the time and doing a job that I I couldn't stand. I was selling timeshare, uh, <laughs> actually, and I was actually good at it. That's a sad thing. <laughs> there's something. There's something sort of funny for like a Buddhist selling yeah, any selling yeah. time. I don't know. It was yeah, exactly. But this was before my first retreat, so you have to understand. This was like the before spring, you know. And I'm smoking cigarettes, and I'm I'm just being self destructive. I'm being not who I am, and there was a sorrow in me that knew there was another life in store. So when I had got my hands on the Paramahasa Yogananda book, that really clicked. And then shortly after that, I got myself to that 10 day retreat. And really after that, my life changed. Hmm. You know, it was, it was almost immediate after. I I think I was so ready um, for something else. I was so ready to learn something else and to understand So it was just that first retreat was just the meeting of many things, the opportunity to find a teacher that I resonated with. And to find a teacher is really challenging. It is a karma. It's like a soul connection. And to have that happen there and to know that um, I would have a support person that I can check in with here and there. Um, And then I wanted to continue. It was like I just got a taste of something. It was an appetizer that 10 day retreat. Now I wanted to go and, um, experience a deeper dive. Well, I think that's one of the things that appeals to me, uh, and appealed to me from the very beginning. I, I got into Buddhism when I was like in my college years. And I, mm. I think it's because it's, it's not something that you have to spend like years and years and years to derive benefit from. Like I found myself clicking almost like as soon as you kind of find the book or the person or whatever it is, like it, it's not like it's some hugely long process to begin um, experiencing positive outcomes from. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I meet people who start a practice of just 15, 20 minutes a day and experience the benefits. Um, yeah, I mean, these are meant to be practical ways to reduce our pain. You know, <laughs> this is like I always tell people to look at the Buddha as a great psychiatrist. You know, you don't have to become something or wear beads and say mantras. And then you can just relate to the Buddha as a psychiatrist that came to really help deal with our minds, which as we can see in the world are so conflicted and confused and acting from that place creates so much more suffering. So for me, it was clear I needed help. I was like that. Help, help right. me. <laughs> right. yeah, I was a, I'm the same way. Like I got into Buddhism right after a buddy of mine took his own life in college. Mm. And I, you know, I resonate a lot with what you're talking about when it comes to like what motivated you to get into the uh, self-realization fellowship. I think the things that push people onto the spiritual path are often very unpleasant. 
Um, it's usually like some kind of crucible of suffering that makes people want to figure out a way to take care of themselves. And I want to make sure to flag this too, because I don't want to, I don't want to sound like a proselytizer. And I think this is one of the things that appeals to me as well about Buddhism is that there's even a debate, I think within the Buddhist community about whether or not it's a religion or is mm. it, or is it like a, a path? It's, it certainly feels like it can be synchronized with other spiritual traditions. Like I think you can be, I was raised Catholic. Um, I don't really practice, but I don't, I feel like you could meld the two in some way and take certain things from Buddhism and pack it into other traditions. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you have a similar feeling or do you feel differently? I have a similar feeling. I feel like it's very user friendly, you know? So when I was teaching and, you know, we started our community in downtown Oakland, many people were uh, Christian or Muslim or Hindu, and they were just so interested in these teachings. So I, I always said, yeah, keep your tradition. You know, this is just, you're adding on, you know, the practice of awareness, mindfulness, the practice of compassion. I feel like it's universal on some level. So I tell people not to get too hung up on, yeah, it's a philosophy in my mind. And, you know, and it's, and now obviously in Buddhist cultures around the world, they, it becomes more, you know, it becomes intertwined with the culture itself. And it appears to be a serious religion, you know, you know how things get. Um, but what we can do here in the West is explore in an open way. You know, what you're committing to is present moment awareness. Who can argue with that? <laughs> right, well, you know what I always say, cause I'm, 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 uh, I think maybe as an outgrowth of my Catholic upbringing and the, the difficulties I had relating to a lot of that, the dogma there is that, uh, like where I always land, if I want to try to get to a really simple place is mm -hmm. that it, it just, it can't hurt to sit down, especially in this culture. It can't hurt to sit down and be quiet. <laughs> like, like, especially, I mean, especially me, I'm a, like a hyperverbal person. Um, <laughs> I find it very, um, I don't know. I find it sort of uncontroversial, this notion that we couldn't all benefit from a little bit of peace and quiet, considering the way that most of us operate in our lives day to day with our phones and our screens. And like, even now with COVID and everybody sheltering, we were talking before we came on. It's like we, everybody's busier than they were before with all these zoom meetings. And you know. <laughs> right. uh, so I don't know. I, I, I feel like if nothing else, uh, you know, it's a good idea or at least something worth considering to just try to spend a few minutes every day, not doing something. Yeah, I agree. And and you can know you can refer to it as centering or listening or prayer or um it's just stopping the avalanche of endless thoughts and stories. It's like you're just pressing the pause button for a few minutes. You know, there's so much happening in our world right now. It's overwhelming, you know, and when you go on, you know, the news, if you do do that and you consume a lot of news, it's so sad and frightening and the stories are being told over and over and over. And, um, and it's important to take care of our heart. You know, often now when I'm meditating, it's just about my heart. You know, how's my heart holding all of this? You know, when I pause, I feel my body How's my body doing? You know, a lot of us are so tense and contracted and shaky. And, you know, there's a lot of shifting in this 
in this world right now, it's like the ground is shaking. It's like earthquakes every day energetically. And so it's so important that when we stop and we pause, we give ourselves the ability to also release that, to feel that, to bring our awareness to that. Um, and that inevitably brings more compassion into ourselves to hold it, to be with it, to be present through this time. 2020, man, what a year so far. <laughs> it's just, it's quite, it's quite a lot to process. And, and it's a lot. Yes. <laughs> I, I think like one of the things about like one of the like basic things about uh, a seated meditation practice that I notice um, and have noticed from the beginning, I've been doing this for, um, I guess, over 20 years. And, uh, mm. I, f I find that just the act of stopping, you know, especially in my evening, if I do a sit in the evening, the morning's a little bit easier because you get out of bed, it's early, you haven't had a lot of time to get wound up, you know, hopefully, mm. hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> uh, hopefully you had like peaceful dreams or, you know, nothing too agitating, but, um, it's the sit in the evening. You know, if I sit down at like five o'clock in the afternoon or, you know, after I finish work or whatever, um, that one, I notice the act of stopping can be so hard to actualize. And there can be a lot of internal resistance. Even when I'm on the cushion, you just feel the force of that uh, habit energy, um, those churning thoughts, you know, whatever it is. Like, I'm curious to know for somebody who's practiced as much as you, is that still there? Like, am I, am I doing this right? Like, is that, I mean, it, do, it does quiet down, but I just noticed that difficulty, like just the act of stopping is a challenge. Oh, I would agree 100%. I mean, that's the hardest part actually is getting to your cushion or your altar and, you know, turning your phone off, shutting the computer, you know, turning off some of the lights and just, you know, once you get to that stage, you the ha the battle, you're halfway there. Just stopping. That physical act of just taking one breath on your chair, on your cushion. And then yeah, there's all this momentum in the mind and there's this tremendous restlessness that we have to deal with. And as meditators, you know, we always have to deal with those two energies of sleepiness. A lot of people write and say, Every time I meditate I fall asleep. And the other one is this restlessness. Right. We're trying to balance these two energies all the time. We want to scream and run off the cushion or we're asleep. Right. And so either one, we have to kind of we deal with those. But yeah, it happens to me, too. I deal with these energies all the time. Sometimes I sit and it's so peaceful and I'm like, oh, that was great. The next day, it's just, you know, monkey mind. Right. right. And you just get more spacious with it. You know, you're just like, ah, oh, it's monkey mind. Darn. Okay, well, let me open to monkey mind then. You know, and it's just, it's just, you know, you just work with it. And there's something about just working with the mind over and over and all of its different experiences. You know, sometimes I sit and I feel sad. I feel the heart. And I think of, you know, my people and what's going on in the urban communities. You know, I, I have thoughts about that or fear, you know, arises or, and I just try to be with whatever it is, just name it, monkey mind, fear. And I just, I just try to keep my heart open and with whatever's arising. Yeah. You ever cry when you meditate? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I'm not the only yeah. one. I, that sometimes happens to me and I'm like, wow, am I, you know, am I getting yeah, too emotional? 
<laughs> yeah, well, my teacher Jack used to always say that when you come to the meditation cushion, you give yourself the opportunity to experience all the ungrieved moments of your life. Like we don't have time, right? We're processing, but we're not processing on an emotional level. We're processing on a mental level. So we see things going on, right? A shooting, people being murdered, or our family member ill. And we, we can't take it in in that moment. But then when we get to our meditation cushion, it feels like that memory comes back up so that we can let go. We can work with it. And that can mean feeling grief. I know a lot of people are feeling enormous amounts of grief right now. People are writing me, talking about the grief and the letting go. And the. And I just say, just let's just keep sitting with it. Let's just, we're alchemizing it in a way by just being there. Mm. Well, I want to I want to talk to you about all that's going on, especially in this context. Um, but mm. before we get too deeply into that, I want to continue, and I want to make sure we get through sort of the arc of of who you are and what you do, because I think all of it is applicable to the moment that we're in. Um, and one question, as an extension of the um, retreats that you were describing, you know, early in your med- you know your life as a meditator, um, you know, you said you went for three months. I think you did a six month. Uh, solo, mm-hmm. like what's the mm-hmm. long, what, what's the longest you've ever been on a solo silent meditation retreat? I think the last time, the longest one was about six months and, um, yeah. And I had different teachers, you know, we were at a very small retreat center. It was about 30 people and I was studying with a lot of Burmese, uh, Sayadaws. Uh, and I just, yeah, I remember I ended up staying, I was initially going to stay for eight months. Um, and then after six, I was like, okay, I'm good. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was like, I'm good. I need to go now. You know, where, where, I, I need where, to go back to Oakland. Where were you? Where were you? <laughs> I was at a center called the Forest Refuge and it's in, um, Barrie, Massachusetts. And that's where I tend to do a lot of long practice. Um, one of the teachers I love a lot is the founder of, um, the Insight Meditation Society, Joseph Goldstein. And then there's a small center out in the woods on the same property. So there's a big residential retreat center where it's like 100 people can come. And then there's a smaller retreat center, and it's designed for people that want to do long, more isolated retreats. And it's very quiet. There's no talking. Um, It's very... um, yeah, it's intense. Actually, it's an intense place. <laughs> well, I, I'm really, I'm, I'm really fascinated with the history of the movement of Buddhism from the east to west, which really didn't happen all that long ago. Um, no, you know, very recent. And you talk about Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield. Um, they are among the vanguard of American Buddhists who really have helped to integrate these teachings into the West. I, I mean, I, if there are people before them, I don't know if I know who they are. Um, but that's, that's the, that's where you trace it back to, you know, this happened what in the sixties really? Yeah. in the sixties was really interesting because there was just a wave of Buddhist teachers, the Zen teachers, Suzuki Roshi, all kinds of people would come and the Tibetan teachers, the Dalai Lama was making, you know, his way, you know, there was a whole wave. And I think what's interesting about Joseph and Jack and maybe also Sharon Salzberg, um, another teacher that was kind of with the three of them, was they just had a way of articulating um, Theravada Buddhism 
in a way that could meet the Western mind by, you know, Western people. So they kind of, so the teachings were making its way. All the traditions were thriving. It's really interesting. It just kind of hit in the 60s, which was a, which everything kind of hit in the 60s, right? So it was like a big, like 2020, everything's hitting right now. Maybe there's going to be another wave of spiritual, I hope. You know, I'm ready. I'm so ready for whatever like positive revolution yeah. could could emerge from these times. But um, let's talk about because, you know, I think you're sort of alluding to this when it comes to the 60s that, you know, there was this um, migration of mm-hmm. East, Eastern spiritual practice uh, practices to the West. There was the Dalai Lama. There were these like basically young Peace Corps volunteers and college students from the United States who were over in Asia and were picking up on this stuff. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. basically the way that it seemed to seem to happen in general. Um, and then, you know, you also had um, people like, um, oh, gosh, I'm going to blank Suzuki. Who wrote Zen? Suzuki. Mind? Yeah, Suzuki Roshi. Yeah, mm-hmm. Suzuki Roshi, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Um, and then you had Chogyam Trungpa, who maybe maybe what what do we call him he's the uh not the wild monk but the uh there's a name for the (laughs) crazy wisdom crazy wisdom yeah the crazy wisdom Mm -hmm. school of buddhism but he was hugely influential and uh, i want to say pema chodron was one of his students and she's gone on to have a big influence in western buddhist thought and all that kind of stuff but um along with that and this is where i think the next phase of your career or another aspect of your career comes into play is the um is the use of plant medicines. I know you, you don't mm. like the term psychedelic or you don't prefer the term psychedelic, uh, if I recall correctly. Am yeah. I, so, yeah. Um, but I think there were, you know, what is the word for it? Is it plant medicine? Is it entheogen? What is it? I think those words uh, are much better description of what we're talking about when we talk about plant medicine. The reason I don't like the word psychedelic is because it, it has a lot of cultural baggage in the West. And it makes it sound as if these things were just invented in the 50s, you know, by Albert Hoffman. Didn't he find, you know, plants? You know, no. It's like <laughs> these are thousands of years old, right? These are coming out of the Amazonian rainforest. And these have been used for, you know, thousands of years by indigenous tribes and grandmothers out in Oaxaca, Mexico. So the the word psychedelic, it, it just you associate it with Timothy Leary and Ram Dass and Golden Gate Park and kind of hippies tripping. So I don't, that word is so different than my experience. So I'm trying to encourage people, you know, words are powerful because they carry association um, that I don't want plant medicines like ayahuasca and wachuma and even psilocybin to be called a psychedelic. That's such a Western word. You know, and it's just, it, I, I saw, anyway, I could go on a tangent about that one, but I'll stop there. But so, um, plant medicine is good or entheogens is good. Okay. Okay. So mm-hmm. the, with regard to Buddhism in the sixties and the sort of integration of, of this kind of practice, uh, with people from the West and with Western, um, you know, if, if it might've been integrated into like more, uh, judeo-christian western traditions or whatever it was you know the a lot of the people who took this stuff on who took on buddhism seem to have been inspired uh, in that direction at least to some extent much of the time by experiences they had with plant medicine 
Um, and I, I find that interesting, you know, and it certainly was the case for me. I, I don't want to put too much emphasis on it because it doesn't feel that neat and tidy. You know, it's not like, oh, I took mushrooms <laughs> and suddenly I'm interested in Buddhism. But it, it, <laughs> but, it's, it, but it's also, it would also be inaccurate to say that those experiences of my youth didn't nudge me in this direction or, or put me into a frame of mind where I was asking questions that I might not otherwise have asked. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's really, really fair to say that many of those teachers were experimenting in India, in the U.S. Um, with LSD at that time. And it does, you know, these things can be a doorway in a powerful portal. You know, we, we learn about ourselves, we see um, reality in a different way, and it can be very inspiring. And I think for many of those teachers, it was. And it was also like, you know, uh, John Kabat-Zinn was also uh, in India at that time. Krishna Das was in India. If you go back, there was all of these people who are, you know, being really on the edge of Dharma and, and mindfulness movement all kind of came out of that same group around that same time, having kind of spent years in India and on the road and also exploring, uh, you know, at that time, LSD, um, other plants weren't so readily available like they are now, but, um, that was a medicine yeah. for people. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, Ramdas and Timothy Leary, they were, fi <laughs> I mean, famously fired from Harvard for, yeah. for, yeah. uh, using LSD <laughs> with, with students. So, I mean, that part of the, of the history is certainly, um, well-documented and sort of undeniable, but, I guess like the next phase of questioning for you is that, you know, you have uh, in the years since you first began practicing Buddhism and training to be a teacher and then teaching in the Buddhist tradition, you have also begun to uh, do teaching work and healing work with plant medicines. I think in particular, ayahuasca, you have a, um, a company called Lotus Vine Journeys. Like, could you describe the work that you do there and then also can you talk about like what instigated this transition? It, it seems like you came to these experiences and medicines maybe later in life than um, mm -hmm. the people we were describing. So how did it happen for you? Yeah. So I, um, after I started really practicing for about 10 years, pretty seriously in the Buddhist tradition. And then um, I was about to open with some friends. We founded a center in Oakland called the East Bay Meditation Center. And I was uh, about to go into long-term teacher training with Jack and Joseph to be a residential retreat teacher. And what happened was a whole bunch, I went on this three-month course and I was doing concentration practices and I fell apart in a way I had never, it was like a meltdown of all meltdowns. And I couldn't understand what was wrong with me. I couldn't understand why I couldn't be with it. I couldn't understand why the environment um, was so difficult to be in a silent container. And I'll just say, as a whole, as a teaching community, we understand trauma way more now than we used to, right? We had no idea, you know, uh, 13, 14 years ago, you know, we understood like, wow, that person's really freaking out. 
well, they should just try to just meditate through it. Now we know, like, oh my gosh, you know, we, we're all studying trauma. We've all been to training, but you don't do that. You don't, you know, put someone in an isolated uh, container and they need contact. They need, you know, there's all these things that we know now from working with people with PTSD and trauma. We're just evolving, you know, just evolution, you know. But at that time, I didn't understand what was happening to me. And I was kind of left the retreat a couple of weeks early in a crisis. And I kept feeling like I needed another approach. Like it wasn't that I didn't, I was giving up on the Dharma, not at all, but I couldn't meditate. Every time I sat down, it was like this acceleration of terror and fear in my body. And I was, I lost a whole bunch of weight. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I didn't understand, but I had completely disassociated, um, now studying trauma and understanding things in such a different way. You know, I didn't understand myself then and neither did anyone else understand what was happening. So I left the retreat. I went and back to the Bay Area where I was living and I met a woman who's a dear friend of mine and also is a clinical psychologist. And I met with her and she said, you know, I'm going to tell you that I think you should come and work with this plant from the Amazon jungle. It's called ayahuasca. And it's incredibly healing. And it sounds like what's happening to you, you need, you know, you need help. And at that point, I'd done everything. I'd swam with dolphins. I went and got blessings. <laughs> I had, like, climbed the mountain. I was, you know, it was, it was like, you know, prayed. I mean, it was like, it was getting worse. You know, I just felt, I, I just felt that I was abandoned by the universe. And it was going on and on and I was fearful and I just couldn't function in a way. And I was supposed to be this leader already. And, and so I felt an urgency to figure this out. And was it, <laughs> these were, these were like lingering traumas from childhood. Yes. Um, you know, I had a sexual assault and abandonment and I'd seen all kinds of violence and I think I never fully processed it. Again, you can process things on a mental level but they can live in you on a physical level, an emotional level, and a vibrational level. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I had understood what happened, right? And and then there was sexual abuse and all this stuff I thought I dealt with. Kind of the classic yogi comes in and goes, I don't know what's happening. I thought I dealt with this a long time ago. It's like, well, there's <laughs> layers, it's you not, know. It's not done with you yet. It's not, it's not over. How do we know? It's arising. That's why we know it's not over, you know. And so anyway, I went, based on her, I went to an ayahuasca ceremony with very, I mean, again, I was desperate. I was like, if my friend says this is going to help me, and she's had amazing healings with it, I'm open. You know, I was kind of like at rock bottom, so you're just open to whatever, you know? Uh, So I was like, okay, let's do it. And I I went to this little small ceremony up in the mountains with this... um, amazing sound healer and she was right by my side and it was a very small group and I, I had the most um, healing eight hours of my entire life. I understood more about what was happening with myself than I'd understood in years and so I became very, very intrigued by that and shortly after that experience, I did a few more times and experienced so much healing that I decided to go to Peru. And that's what began a long journey of going to Peru and studying with indigenous healers, particularly Shipibo healers. Um, And it was like, it's a crazy adventure. And I'm actually working on a book about it right now, about all those adventures and all the healing and all the magic. It's kind of like a Carlos Castaneda book. 
you know, <laughs> a how, modern one. <laughs> how, how far along are you? Well, I would say I'm about halfway there. You know, I'm trying to finish it in the next six months. Um, but I've got, you know, halfway and I'm working with a fantastic editor. And and I, I think that that book will be very timely, you know, when it comes out uh, as we move into this next phase. So I, so I used ayahuasca to heal my trauma. I was interested in it as a healer. And how it could help me with my trauma, my ancestral trauma, um, racial trauma. Um, and that was always my intention. For me, the plants are medicine and they're doctors and mm. especially ayahuasca. And so that's how I always talk about it. And so what happened was I did it for many years secretively. I didn't tell anybody, just a couple people. And then I decided to live there for a year at this one jungle temple and really study, really study like a, a real apprentice, almost like a doctor in re residency, you know. So I went there for a year. And when I came back, I said, that's it. I'm going to start a community where I run retreats that are Buddhist based and then we use plant medicine. So that's Lotus Vine Journey. Hmm. And so for people listening who might not have any experience with this stuff, like when you take ayahuasca, I think a lot of people might be familiar with this by now, but not everybody. You drink, mm. you, it's a, it's a vine that grows in the Amazon. It is cooked. Like, I, like what's the preparation uh -huh. process? And then you drink basically uh, a liquid, <laughs> like a little bit of a liquid, not a ton. Uh, and it doesn't probably taste great uh and yeah. then there is a purge they call it la purga don't they it's like uh there, there's a lot of vomiting often that goes along with it though not always but the, like this the dynamics of the experience itself can you talk about and then when it comes on like what are you i know these experiences are sort of ineffable and they're hard to language but can you just try to take people through what uh, one of these experiences uh when it's at its best is like and like how how do you get the healing that you describe yeah, that's a great question. So, so ayahuasca is made, it's a, a vine that grows um, around trees really deep in the rainforest. And so pieces of the vine are cut, they're chopped, and then they're cooked down with another plant called chacruna. And they're made together. And so they're cooked down for like a couple of days, actually. It, it's, a, it's quite a process to make a one batch of um, medicine. And it's amazing the origins are very mysterious of how they could have possibly combined these two plants. I mean, right, right. yeah, it's like all kinds of herb, the legends are, you know, go back a thousands and thousands of years. And, you know, but if you ask indigenous people, they'll say the plants told me mm. they always say that. So. Um, so, yeah. So you cook it down. You drink no more than a tablespoon. I mean, it's not, not much is needed. And so pretty soon with the ayahuasca, I guess I could, it's hard for people to understand spirits in our culture because we, we don't believe that we believe that this is the only reality. And it's hard for people to believe that we're living in a multidimensional universe, <laughs> you know, that there, this is one realm. This is a human realm. So, so when we take ayahuasca, basically what we're doing is we're, ayahuasca is a doctor. It's a spirit doctor, though. And so we have these illnesses that, you know, depression, you know, suicidal tendencies, addiction, um, the way that we think, you know, are all, you know, mental illness 
um, in all of its levels. So let's not talk about extreme mental illness, but just, you know, severe depression or um, anxiety that's debilitating. Like all of these things are really helpful and also physical things. Ayahuasca has been known to cure cancers and autoimmune disorders, asthma. Um, so when you, you take the medicine, so say, you know, at our ceremonies when we're in Peru, uh, we, we do an hour of meditation and dharma first, and then we take the medicine. It usually kicks on for most people within 30 to 45 minutes. And you're lying down, and we have a whole team of people, including myself and my whole amazing team. They're like doctors and nurses. And then I have a beautiful maestro that I work with. And then what we do is we sing and play music all night. So we're sort of guiding the journey with prayers and music, and we're on this amazing land in Peru and the middle of the jungle and we're on a river and we're in this kind of magical maloka. So a lot of what's happening too is the earth, you know, is healing us. And so ayahuasca in some ways is also like Gaian energy, earth energy. It's like healing our our wounds. And it's very like, you know, the purge is called the purja because ayahuasca is so powerful because it basically purges out dark energy. So let me give you an example. Like I've worked with people who have been in war zones. So maybe when they're uh, experiencing the ayahuasca, they go back in time to where they were in that situation. And and the, the trauma that's accumulated in the body may need to get purged out. Um, also, it purges out all the uh, GMO food that we've consumed, the toxins, the chemicals. Many of us have lived lives full of chemicals, and that actually begins to affect our body on a cellular level. So ayahuasca cleans the physical body. She works with the mental level. So all of our neurotic thinking and beliefs, you know, like the, you know, like white supremacy, it's a terrible program. It's a painful program, right? Programs of uh, misogyny or uh, all of the programs of, uh, you know, destructive religious uh, downloads that people grow up with. All of these uh, thoughts and beliefs that aren't true about the nature of reality. Um, So the mental level and then on the emotional level, all of that we hold in our bodies. You know, Eckhart Tolle calls it the pain body. Right. Uh, Ayahuasca definitely works on that level, like comes in and there could be these old wounds that we've never dealt with, but they're hanging on us. They're weighing on us. They're making us sick. They're making us confused. And so we process that. And then the vibrational level, you know, uh, you know, that level is like, you know, the level acupuncture works on and Reiki. You know, we have this vibrational body and um, it can be terror. So chronic pain, you know, that's a, a vibrational body issue. You know, people come and they say, I've been to 30 doctors. I have debilitating neck pain. I can barely move, but there is no one sees anything. Right. That's like, okay, we got a huge block here in the energetic body. And it's so ayahuasca is amazing. It can go in and it can it heals and takes out all of that. That's why ayahuasca is one of the most powerful plants and why people have to be kind of prepared for it. It works on a DNA level. And so these are all the things that I'm writing about. So I can talk about how this works for days you know I'm, I'm loving it no I'm loving it I'm loving it I have such a fascination with it. I've never done it but I've done other yeah. I've done other plant medicines and uh you know I think that um 
there's a lot to it. And I, I think like you just, like you just said, it's, it's a big experience. It's not, you know, it's not something to be taken lightly. You know, you have to go in prepared. I know that a lot of times when people are going to do an ayahuasca ceremony, it's recommended that they either fast or eat like vegetarian for the week preceding. And mm-hmm. you don't, don't drink alcohol and, you know, you kind of go in with your system clean to begin with. And, um, I think too, you know, you, you talk about integrating Buddhism with the ceremony mm-hmm. and that appeals to me as well, because, uh, you know, in, in my youth and it's sort of like amazing and, uh, frightening to think back on, but I did a lot of this stuff in my youth. I went to college in Boulder and you can imagine, you can Im- <laughs> right. ima- imagine what that was like. And we didn't know what we were doing. Like I certainly, right. I certainly didn't. And I had these really powerful medicines in my body and I'm like in a concert hall with like 25,000 screaming people. <laughs> like, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was certainly an, an incredible experience, uh, on a lot of levels, but it was also chaotic and sloppy and not necessarily in sync with the true purpose of these things. Like, I think I've come to see the purpose in a different light since then. And I had an experience in recent years, um, where I tried to do it quote unquote, right. Uh, I did a lot of deep reading. I read about the Johns Hopkins research protocol and the way that they conduct, you know, ceremonies for people in terms of dosage amounts and just how they handle it. You know, like, I'm like, how do you actually do this? I read the Michael Pollan book, you know, like all those, mm-hmm. all the, all those kinds of things. And, um, I wound up taking a really strong dose of uh, psilocybin and I was lying down and I could, you know, I could spend an hour with you just like trying to pick that experience apart. It was, <laughs> it was extraordinary. But the thing that I want to get at, and you know, you said this earlier is that in these ceremonies that you do f- uh, for Lotus vine in Peru, people are lying down and I was lying down for this experience. I had a, I had a, uh, eye mask on. I kind of, I went into sensory deprivation for this one. Like I, I wore one of those like sleep masks, you know, so that mm-hmm. I would, I wouldn't be distracted by like, you know, the television in my room or whatever, where I was lying down. And I just wanted to kind of be inside my own mind. And that part of it was unbelievable. But what I could not get over when it was all said and done was the fact that I ever took this stuff and was like ambulatory in a public setting. (laughs) Oh, I know the trauma of it. People have scars from this Disneyland, um, LSD and framing. I I did. I did. I did Disneyland. Just so you know, I did that. I'm the guy who did that in college. (laughs) Well, I think many people don't realize, and I think that that's what I have learned from my years of working with the indigenous is the role of the ceremony and how that when you take these things in an incredibly safe way where you have guides there and you have helpers there and I have people on the door helping people up and down to the bathroom and there's support all around and you know we do these six seven hour ceremonies down there um that the ceremony you know is what we learn we didn't know that and people really harmed themselves in the 60s and 70s and now i know even like recently people <laughs> and, you know, and the night and the 90s <laughs> yeah and 2020s there's probably some somebody out there who was like wow i just really hurt myself by doing that with my husband and we're now we're you know we're fighting on the medicine or whatever you know it's like the role of the ceremony and I think that's one thing that I, I want to start teaching about is how these things are being done in the way 
um, that it creates it can create a real trauma because your psyche opens. These are so powerful. Your whole system, mind, body widens, and there's this portal there. And if you have negative energy around you or chaotic energy around you, it can actually set you back if you do them in the wrong way. And that's a lesson we all learn. It's a bitter lesson, you know, like, whoa, that was not good. You know, that these plants have to be respected and the power of them, you know, and, and with Westerners, we don't grow up with this. You know, it's different when you're in Peru and Brazil and they've grown up with these medicines or in Oaxaca, Mexico, or, you know, when you're you're in your Native American traditions, they grow up with the understanding the role of a ceremony. And John Hopkins is really great. And they're one way to do it, you know, but for me, working with these plant medicines, the best way is to do it is very close to the earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah. earth is connecting you back to yourself. See the you thing. Know? The thing for me, like I live in Los Angeles, and like yeah. I, I love the idea of like being out <laughs> in the trees. But I'm like, yeah. I had to hide in my house. I was like, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna be out uh, like at Griffith Park. Like who knows who I'll run into. You know? like, exactly, <laughs> and I understand that. And that, yeah, you don't want to do that. Your house is the best bet. And you, and you know, we make do with what we have. We we make do with it. I understand that not everybody can access, you know, the jungle or or nature in that way. And you want to have a safe place where you have quiet, that you don't have a lot of different energies around, you know, and that you have support maybe on hand as someone who is just checking in after or, you know, and it, it, it's just, you know, we're experimenting and we're learning how to use these plants. We're learning about these plants in the West. Right. you know, in the North. And so there's a lot to learn. That's part of the reason why I'm so excited to write this book and to start making a lot more um, content about the role of ceremonies and how to use these things and where the dangers are and what to look for. You know, I want to start helping people because many people are experimenting at home right now. Well, yeah. And there's also people like, you know, it's like some guy from Chicago who's suddenly like an ayahuascaro, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's it's like, well, maybe, but like, what are your credentials? And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's sort of inevitable as, because I think people are hungry for healing. And I think whenever something can offer genuine healing, it's going to permeate. Um, I think some of the things that we're speaking to right now have to do with the, the classic, um, set and setting. Yes. Um, what do you, you know, that's kind of the, the dictum that goes all the way back to Ram Dass and Timothy Leary, you know, is that a person's mindset and then the physical setting that they're in when they do this stuff is absolutely crucial to outcome. And uh, I think when I, you know, when I bifurcate my experiences with this stuff between the, the you know, the sloppy experiences of my youth and like the deeply meaningful Mm. almost like, you know, epiphanic, like it was incredible. The experience that I had, um, later in life, so much of it had to do with the fact that I think I had done years and years of, uh, Buddhist meditation. Like there was a lot of crossover and that was really encouraging to me. Like the training that I had done on the cushion helped me quite a lot inside of the experience. If that makes sense. Um, I was, when, when things took a dark turn, I was like, okay, you know, like I was, I was sort of ready for that. Like if my mind went to a place that might have previously scared the bejesus out of me, you know, like I think having sat on a cushion and having watched my mind do things of a similar nature made me a little bit more prepared for it. 
Um, and then I think too, just like doing like any kind of hour of meditation practice beforehand or writing in a journal even and kind of, uh, setting the table and, and, you know, maybe stating what you want from the experience and making it conscious. Uh, I feel like these experiences are very suggestible. Is that register? Yeah. I mean, I think that's what I love so much about what we're doing in Peru is that we're weaving in so much Dharma you know, and, and, and people can lie down, but they can also sit up and some do in a meditation posture if they can, you know, they're practicing in that way. And yeah, we just keep coming back to the breath, the body, the heart, you know, we're guiding that the whole way. I always think of it as ultimate meditation practice, you know, and things are happening really fast, you know, whole world's coming and going. And I'm just like, let's be present. Let's be present. And, um, and therefore, the set and setting becomes one filled with wisdom and compassion, and we absorb that, right? Because anything around you is an influence, right? So if we're practicing, practicing those ideas, and then you're taking them into ceremony, then the the, the ceremony itself, ayahuasca is not just a doctor, she's also a very profound teacher. And teaching wisdom is what is going to liberate us from all the illnesses. So that's the highest kind of medicine, right? As we know, mm. right? The truth, uh, uh, reality. And so, um, so people love the, the blend and I do too. I mean, it's just like, I can't imagine doing it in any other container. I did it for years just with indigenous people. And for me, it was missing Buddhism. Shamanism needs Buddhism. And for me, Buddhism needs shamanism because I spent years working with people who were stuck, not plat they had plateaued and they were no longer growing in their practice. Mm. In right? Their, in and, their in their Buddhist practice. Yes. They had reached like they would talk about the sixties and how they had all this insight and then twenty years later they're coming to the retreats and they're getting less and less out of it. They still feel stuck in the same patterns. They still have the same kind of neurotic clinging. They still feel their heart isn't open. They're like, I'm not, I'm, I'm doing this practice because I love it, but I don't feel like I'm getting liberating insight, you know, and I'm trying it. And so there's blocks there. And so for me, the Buddhist world needs an accelerator, right? It's like, okay, well, here we go. We're going to do a different kind of retreat. Uh, and we're going to move through some of these huge blocks that can, that can happen, to people, especially in the West where we are so mind um, forward, you know, right. we're, we're, we don't live in our body and our heart. So there becomes these blocks between the head and the heart, right. right? We can't access the body. We're just pretending in a way that we're in our bodies. We're just going through the motion. And so this is a way that I can help people um, get unstuck a little bit. And then of course we go back to our practice. Our practices are everything, you know, that's the foundation. We take refuge every night, you know, it's like, here we go. This is it. <laughs> well, and the Buddhist stuff is the Buddhist stuff is every day. I mean, you can't do ayahuasca, but once a quarter, I mean, I guess you, right. can, you can do it. Some people might do it more, but I mean, th these, uh, these plant medicines sort of by design, um, they're not really, even for somebody who's like, compulsive like it's not something you can really do that often <laughs> you know like no it, it's kind of built no. it's kind of built it's kind of baked into the cake and so um you know I, I totally get it i think that the synergy between these two things is exciting and i can't wait to read the book that you're writing about it but i also know that there might be people who have a more traditional view of buddhism sure. who, who might look at the integration of plant medicine with 
Buddhist practice or might, you know, hear this notion of an accelerator and, um, you know, either take umbrage or have like deep reservations. Like I'm sure you've come up against a little bit of that in the Buddhist community. Oh yeah. I think I'm, I'm, I'm very controversial. I think on some levels and, you know, the spirit rock teachers council for many years, I've been the object of a lot of debates. <laughs> like, is this a breach of the fifth precept, which is a precept, you know, in Buddhist tradition, we take precepts of non-killing, non-stealing, mindfulness of speech, mindful of our sexual energy. And then the fifth one is no intoxicants. And I think the elders council and myself, we've really been talking like, what is an intoxicant? What is what clouds the mind? And what is this truly a medicine? And, um, and I the thing is, I with people who feel afraid of this, I understand. And for people who are in recovery, 12 step, this can seem terrible, like a terrible conversation, you know, to hear like, what are people doing? I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid. And I, I really honor all the voices. I have never argued with the elders council and my peers about it. I always deeply listened and I share the same concerns. Like, yes, you're right. We have to be very careful. This is, I understand how this can be troubling. I understand the debate. I never fought against them. I always was like, I hear you. I'm with you. I, I share the same, um, just wonderings. I share the same thoughts with you about it and I'm going to continue. <laughs> <laughs> There's something here, you know, and so they just go, oh goodness, okay, spring, you know, but it's so respectful because I am deeply love my tradition. I deeply love this way and I would never do anything to dishonor it. And yet I just know that this was the path that I needed to heal and it's a path that many are so curious about. So for those who feel that it's just horrible, I do understand your your feeling, and I honor that, and I bow to that. How could I not? Mm. And then, like, uh, I feel like you know, so like you said, so many people are curious about it. Uh, I hear talk about it all the time, like among yeah. among friends, online, mm -hmm. in podcast conversations. Um, I think sometimes this stuff, you know, much like uh, mindfulness, like you know, the whole Mick mindfulness thing, where people are. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. sort of co-opting uh, certain practices, you know, meditation practices or whatever, and trying to use them to kind of like get an edge at the office or something. It seems depressing to me. But it's, <laughs> it's also right. like, you know, you have all these like programmers and coders in Silicon Valley who are micro dosing so that they can, you know, make the next great app or whatever. And, yeah. um, you know, so I think like there's always like this kind of, it's the American way, isn't it? Like, we're like, how can we use this to beat somebody else? You know? Yeah, it's a lot of appropriation energy around everything. Uh, right, yeah. right. Assuming, appropriating, yeah, using it for capitalism and greed. I know. Uh, but but I think even there, even there, I would say the optimist in me is thinking, <laughs> even if these people aren't necessarily saying it explicitly, I think implicitly what they're saying is that they want some healing. <laughs> um, I, yeah, the mind... Yeah, yeah, I do agree with you. Because if you microdose all day long, you're going to have a mystical experience at one point, And you're going to have a, a heartfelt experience, even if you're trying to program all day, there's going to be a gap. Yeah, well, and something will come through. <laughs> I, I, I like I was like, re, you know, I'm, I'm a very curious person. So I was reading about microdosing. And I was like, wow, you know, like, 
maybe this is a thing because I'm a I'm a writer. I'm trying to be creative. I'm like maybe. Right. I'm also like I'm also one of these people who like the very littlest amounts of anything hit me. You know. Yeah. And so I actually recorded an episode of this podcast where like that day at like noon I was like okay I'm going to take like a little micro dose. And then this like great author shows up at my house. This was, you know, way before COVID. So I was interviewing people in person and the whole interview, I was like, can he tell that I'm kind of bug eyed? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that's the thing. I'm the same. You know, if I say, Oh, I'll microdose and then try to work on my book or write a blog, I just end up going outside and sitting under the trees and, thinking about something very different, wanting to meditate. I I can't do it. I'm always amazed at people who can work, you know. Um, uh, Wow. Or unless they're painting or maybe doing something creative. But but I think the bottom line is to be intentional. Like how we, like when we take these plants, there's so much power. And, And when we're really intentional, and like you said, we come in with a strong intention of wanting to heal, like, want to heal from my divorce. I want to heal this hurt or I want to use this time as deep prayer. Like that's usually the highest and you'll get the most out of it. You know, the energy follows our intention. You know, we pray and we, we, we connect to nature and we, and we, we connect to our compassionate heart. That's a lot of what I teach in Peru. You know, so much of it is the Bodhisattva, like we're, we're, we're becoming Jedi's in a way. I know that's a little corny, but in a way we are like, because we want to go out in the world and be a light. And so for me, everything is about that. All of these medicines come to one thing. Can I be of service to this, this world? Can I be a light of truth and, and love and live from that place? So at the end of the day, just, yeah, be aware of what you're asking for and why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. So this is a perfect point, uh, point to segue to the moment that we're in now, like culturally, racially, politically, you know, all of it, the big soup Mm -hmm. that we're all in right now. And, um, you know, the really difficult energies that we're all trying to process, um, you know, to make sense of where we are and how we got here. But I think most importantly, what to do, like, that's where Mm -hmm. I find, that's where I find myself struggling the most. And, Mm. um, you know, wanting to take rational, meaningful steps to make things better and to do it in a way that doesn't inadvertently cause additional harm. Yeah. <laughs> um, it can feel sort of like walking through a minefield sometimes, you know, you want to make sure you say the right things and do the right things. And I, I think a lot about trying to integrate, you know, things I might learn on the cushion or, you know, that sort of stuff, you know, the meditation practice and integrating it into um, my approach. And so I'm imagining you're getting tons of questions about this from students mm-hmm. and people, mm-hmm. in your, people in your life, but you know, th- there's a lot of anger in the culture. And I think a lot of it is righteous anger, but I also know from my Buddhist studies that, uh, anger is a, it's a difficult and often dangerous energy, you know, and you got to be careful with it because it can lead you astray. <laughs> Uh, Mm -hmm. so I think like maybe that's a place to start is like, how do we take the, the, the appropriate anger that, you know, most all of us are feeling around the killing of George Floyd and systemic racism and all of the injustices that it entails and how do we make sure that it doesn't get the better of us and prevent us from 
making meaningful change like uh, you don't you know mm, how do we deal mm-hmm. with that anger like do you have any advice for people out there who might be struggling yeah well i think you're you know it is so many factors going on i mean we have a political crisis we have a health crisis we have the past the demons of america crisis coming right. back you right. know it's like it's so interesting with the past like you know here we are like with confederate flags again and like what was that even about you know where like people are going back into the past so there's a lot of energy of old unresolved hurt and i always think of anger as grief you know it's a manifestation of grief when you see really angry people screaming or out there often there's tears too like it's a grief it's like a very intense kind of grieving of of, of something, you know, a response. And then obviously there's just hatred. So first let's think about that for a moment. I think anger is natural and I think it's okay to feel anger. Anger just arises in the moment, you know? And so we want to learn how to work with our anger skillfully. You know, we want to open to it. We want to feel it. Now, hatred is something different. Okay. I really pick these two apart in my mind because hatred is like, you know, when I decide to engage in hatred I take you know I might have an angry moment and then I sit there and I feel it all day long right I hate this person I hate that I hate you know so that is highly not only unskillful but very toxic as we know just the kind of simmering of rage and we burn and we 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 put everybody in that you know and we just like simmer on it all day long that's actually not anger that's just hatred Anger is just an energetic, you know, experience. That's often a cry for justice, like we're seeing on the streets right now, a mix of peaceful protests and then some who feel so unheard and hurt. Um, so I, you know, when I, I think about what to say to people, it's like a time also to really listen and to understand that there are many causes and conditions that have led us. This is where the the Buddhist doctrine of the law of causality. Like, why are we here? Oh, there's many causes to this current effect. And we have to, I think, as a as a as Buddhist communities and religious communities and spiritual communities and those with loving hearts who want peace. We actually do individually have to be do some work around healing the wound of all the years of oppression of black and brown people. There is something that collectively we have to be present for and to feel like we want to heal this. You know, I was with a group of friends the other day and we were like, we want to heal this wound. How do we get beyond the rhetoric and how do we go back in time and to heal this? What do we need to do? What do we and, need? What do we need? Yeah, to do? <laughs> I think we have to be willing to feel it, you know, not try to fix things yet, but be willing to tell the truth, you know, like truth and reconciliation is what is needed. Mm. Um, you know, and the word truth is the willingness to for each of us in our own lives to to be willing to go back in history and look at how these causes and conditions came to be. And to look at white supremacy as a program. You know, I had a white friend at my house the other day who was crying about this issue. And I looked at her and I said, honey, you're innocent. (laughs) This is a program. Like if you tell someone for hundreds of years that they are better, that they are superior, 
you know, this group is inferior and everything in the society enforces that. And you enforce it with slavery, you enforce it with Jim Crow and segregation, then you enforce it with just sheer violence. Then, you know, of course, we have this program. I have it as, you know, the inferior one. Others have it as the superior one. But I think what, what I would say to people is to get curious about it. Like we heal it by telling the truth. That's all that can ever heal this. We, 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 get, we reconcile what has happened in this country. We can't avoid it. And a lot of people do want to avoid the whole thing. They have good hearts, but the thought of just opening to it, they get scared, they get ashamed, they feel attacked. But I think the main thing is to just be, we want to become historians right now. We have to go back in time here. We actually are back in time. Haven't you felt like that? Like, I mean, there's recently a whole series of people, uh, black men being hung. Right. If that's not back in time, then where are we? Right. You know? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we've I, regressed. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like we have. And I feel like, mm-hmm. um, you know, the next, like, line of questioning uh, around this stuff, and, and, you know, you're talking to it right now, is, is how to use language uh, I guess in Buddhism, in a Buddhist context, it would be mindful speech, um, which is so important, I think, especially when we're talking around sensitive topics and we're dealing with strong emotions because, you know, one false word can set people off. I mean, I see it all the time on online and, uh, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, it feels very delicate. And I think, too, you know, you're talking about truth and reconciliation, which is a process of communication that we can imagine unfolding, you know, hopefully at the federal government level at some point, um, post Trump, uh, I would, ima- mm-hmm. I, I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to happen with uh, Donald Trump in the white house, but, um, I, that is a process that is very much tied to language. We have to be willing to communicate about this stuff. And the thing that I think you're speaking to is like a grand gesture. Like we're not going to be able to heal uh, the pain that our history um, has wrought upon so many of us, or all of us, really, unless we get honest about it and we have mm-hmm. a, a very public conversation about it. And it's got to be a big public conversation. It can't be sort of shunted off to the side in some House subcommittee. Like, it's got to be, I think, as I'm imagining it anyway, and maybe you differ, but I think it's got to be something that's, like, on television, and we have leadership, and we have people from all sides of the spectrum, or all, you know, all points along the spectrum coming together to talk about this in an honest way. Um, I'm also open to the idea of reparations as part of the grand gesture, because unless we offer something as uh, a society by way of formal apology that I don't know, like I can see that being part of it and, and, and helping to heal. Uh, I guess I'm, Mm. are you in sync on that front? Do you feel similarly? Well, I think that the bigger, I, I, I mean, I, I've looked at reparations a lot, you know, it was interesting idea brought up by, um, uh, Ta-Nehisi was, Coates. Or... Yeah, Ta-Nehisi Coates. And also the presidential, why am I forgetting her name? Um, the woman running for president, the spiritual teacher, Marianne Williamson, was oh. bringing it up a lot when she was last year. I think for me, it's not so much about a public thing right now. I think what for me, what it is, is in everybody's heart. 
because you can do these grand gestures, you can pass legislation, you can pass the Emancipation Proclamation, you, you know, but it's, it's actually in the hearts of people. You know, this is, this is a shift in consciousness and we're all holding it in place. And so I think the more important conversations are the ones that people are having in their dinner tables with their own families that don't even involve black and brown people, right? It's like the healing of this issue is, is going to come from the healing of the white, white people. It doesn't actually involve, yes, you can stand up, you can walk with us, you could be, you know, supporting the movement on the, you know, the cry for justice. Yes, you can be there, you can be like an ally and, and, and speak about it. But I think the real work is going to be done in families' homes, what they're sharing with each other, a shift to understand um, how oppression works in some way and how, and the views of superiority and, 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 and be willing to say, this is the programming and I want to look at it to get curious. I mean, here we are in the Dharma and we want to see these veils. We want to see the program. And so I think that that is the real work. The grand gestures will come naturally out of this shift in consciousness, which is actually happening right now in a way I haven't seen in a long time. Like people are really interested in, uh, you know, there's so many anti, I have a lot of friends who teach anti-racism workshops and classes at Inside LA. Um, and the numbers of people going like, okay, well, how am I contributing to this? Or what do I need to learn? Or, and just the willingness to look at the program and innocently without blame and shame and you know, a lot of people go straight into that. A lot of white people can't talk about this because they feel ashamed, right? That somehow I contributed to it. But I always say, you know, everybody's innocent. You know, like if you're indoctrinated into a belief system, it's very hard to see out of it, especially hundreds of years, a global one at that. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, right. It takes like effort to go like, what do I really think here? You know, so I think the majority of the work is done is going to be done in white families around dinner tables with a lot of heart and a lot of soul searching. Yeah, no, though, again, I, you know, I agree with you. I think those conversations need to happen. I'm imagining some of my like uh, white Southern relatives who might mm -hmm. might not share my politics and like trying to bridge those divides. Uh, yeah. and the, the challenge of language, like what to say, how to say it, how to respond if they respond with, you know, some hostility or some strong, mm -hmm. you know, like they're difficult conversations to navigate, but they're necessary conversations to have, even if they're painful. Well, you know, and all you can do is to really just come from the heart, you know, like for me, I don't, I don't try to talk about this in any other way, but the heart. You know, like the heart of, of like, you know, we want to love all beings here. And like, there's something just so delusional about racism. <laughs> you know, it's just so crazy. Like, there's this kind of stupidity in it that is just beyond. But that's the program, you know. But I do believe that this issue, you know, when we talk about this, like, period that we're in, like, the great turning and the shift in consciousness, I do believe what's holding this planet back from being a place where of love and safety is this issue. This is a global issue. This, um, 
you know, the colonizing mind, the hatred of indigenous, the hatred of the earth, the hatred, you know, it's not only, uh, a, you know, put toward black and brown people, but they also represent the earth body in a way, you know, that just, you know, like in Peru, there's like, you know, they suffered so much from people coming in and killing all the Amazonian people, the shamans that take out rubber trees. I mean, there's history of it. It's like, you know, and so we just have to be willing to open to that in order to heal it. And yeah, just willing to open, you know. And I think the entire nation needs an ayahuasca ceremony. That would help. <laughs> yeah, well, that would help. Well, I think we're in a weird way. We're getting one right now, right? This COVID has forced us all into our homes and some are using it in good ways. And yes, and and some are not, some are getting sicker, you know, not healthier in this time. And, um, but there is a kind of, the fact that I saw this, somebody posted this thing on online that said two months ago, we were all posting pictures of the bread we make we were making, you know, when the COVID first hit, everyone's like cooking and they're posting, I made this, I made that. And then now we're talking about defunding the police and overthrowing white supremacy. <laughs> what the hell was in that bread? You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's really huge. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. like, so there is something and I and I would tell listeners just Move your heart toward justice. Let your heart decide what to do. But the willingness to stand up for what's true. You know, this is like the movement of Nelson Mandela and Dr. King. And, you know, all of this is very dharmic. You know, we're standing up for justice. Um, and so, you know, just let it come from love. Do it because you want to be on the side, you know, do it because you want to stand in solidarity. It can't come from guilt, shame, and blame. That's the old paradigm. Wow, that's great. That's great wisdom. I love, uh, I love that. It simplifies it. You know, I think I can spend so much time in my head trying to game it out. Like, what's the right thing to do? And I intellectualize <laughs> it. And yeah. I think, think maybe the hard approach is the wiser approach and the more, it's like the straighter line from A to B. Yeah, because if we listen to the heart, the heart knows what to do. We get in our mind about it. And, and I, I understand that, you know, like, you know, all of this is about love. It has to be. It's, a, it's like we're, we're transforming this hatred into love, you know, and it has to be that. And so maybe if you engage with your relatives that are, you know, Southerners, and we know this program is really deep, you know, the Confederate states or, you know, in the, I was looking at an old movie, Lincoln, I was watching the movie about Abraham Lincoln the other night, and was really curious about the Southern Confederate in the Union. And it's still divided right now, down that exact line, blue, red, you know, it's so amazing. And so the only way we're going to heal that is to reach out to your Southern family, and to try to just share your thoughts, and it may be open, it may be not. But I think we can't shut down the dialogues. We've got become so polarized, right? There's like, ah, those people on both sides, you know, and, that, and that's what the president sort of fuels. He loves to make the divisions and fuel hatred amongst, you know, states and people and communities. And so we have to override that and be willing to reach out. That's, I think, a great place to end. Um, 
I have so enjoyed talking with you. I'm, uh, I'm going to be the first person to buy your next book as soon as it comes <laughs> out. And you, you, you better come back and talk to me about it. I want to, I want to make sure we have a conversation that really, you know, dives even more deeply into all the work that you're doing in Peru. And, um, I can't wait to read, um, you know, all that you have to say about it. So I appreciate this time and I wish you well. I should also say, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, Dan Harris, the 10% happier podcast. I want to suggest that, uh, because he does television journalism, like you've got to get him down to Peru. I feel like that would be a great, <laughs> AB, like great yeah. ABC news, like America tuning in and watching, uh, Dan Harris at, uh, Lotus Vine Journeys. Well, the funny thing is, ABC News, um, Nightline, we have we were set for them to come down and do a piece on us. We were all, yeah, until the COVID hit. So there's a lot of people really interesting, but timing is everything. And also, Dan Harris, um, a podcast I just did, it was just released today with him. Oh, really? So there's one that just comes out. Yep, the Dharma of Harriet Tubman in this time. We were talking a lot about race in America. Awesome. Well, Spring, yeah. uh, such a delight to talk with you. Uh, oh, my, my, my thanks once again. Stay, uh, stay well up in your treehouse in Northern California. Um, <laughs> you do live in a treehouse, like for real, like it's in a tree. <laughs> well, the decks in the trees, and it's way up in a redwood forest, but it's not actually sitting in a tree. Oh, okay. I was yeah. I was enjoying thinking of you like actually in a treehouse, but I get I'll have to settle I'll have it's to settle close. for it. Okay. Well, thank you so much once again, and uh, best of luck writing the the last half of your book. Yeah, thank you so much, Brad. All right, that is Spring Washam. Her book is called A Fierce Heart. It is available now from Hay House. You can find Spring Washam online at springwasham.com. You can follow her on Twitter, at Spring Washam. She's all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. Track her down. You can also learn more about the work that she does in Peru at lotusvinejourneys.com. And if you're up in Northern California or, you plan, or you're planning to be there, if you want to check out the East Bay Meditation Center, the website is eastbaymeditation.org. A Fierce Heart by Spring Washam. Go get your copy. It's available in paperback from Hay House. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available for free. More than 600 and what, 50 episodes now. All available for free. If you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. If you have something to say, you want to write to me, you can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. That, too, is free. It's all free. Go get the app. It's available wherever you get apps. So that was a nice conversation, was it not? There's something uh, comforting about Spring Washam. She sets me at ease. So uh, there will be another episode of this program on Wednesday. I am not 100% clear yet who the guest will be. I'm still figuring it out. But stay tuned. 
I want to go to Peru and uh, do one of these retreats. Do you think my wife will be up for that? I'll just be gone for three weeks. Gonna have a breakthrough. I'm standing here beside myself. 